And so let us hear then the word of God, Romans 2, verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, obviously, for the last uh, five weeks or so, we have heard an awful lot about the Jews and Israel and Hamas and Palestine and all these things. And we have uh, heard many things about anti-Semitism and how we should respond to that. We've heard many things about Zionism and how we should respond as Christians and how this is a fulfillment of prophecy and so on and so forth. Well, Paul has some very important things for us to remember and understand in these discussions. And one of the um, somewhat shocking things that he says here in Romans is found here in these two verses, especially in verse 29. And as we seek to understand his point, let's make sure that we are understanding some of the implications of what it means. And we'll do a little of that here today. Well, last time, uh, we continued, of course, to hear Paul's toe-stomping message. And simply, again, he is telling us that there is nothing at all in us that is worthy of God's praise. God has no reason to bless us due to our godly behaviors because we are imperfect. We're hypocrites, we're idolaters, and our moralism is for ourselves and not to honor him. And so God is completely just to bring judgment upon us. And so some of the things we read here just a moment ago in in Revelation chapter 20 and the lake of fire, that's what we deserve. But since we will go to any length, really, to ignore this truth, Paul persists in saying this. In Ephesians, he takes three verses to say the same things that he says here. Here, he takes 64, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. Now, this is longer than 14 books in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it is longer than Obadiah and Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Malachi. In the New Testament, this is longer than 2 Thessalonians, Titus, as we just read. Philemon, 2 Peter, 2 John, 3 John, and Philemon. And there are other books that aren't that much longer than these 64 verses. Obviously, for Paul and ultimately for God, this is a very important topic for us to understand, for us to see the extent of our sin. When I was in seminary, one of the professors in particular said on a regular basis, Let us not run too quickly to the New Testament. 
Let us understand the teaching of the Old Testament before we run to the topics of Christ's fulfillment. In the same way, we can say, let us not run to grace too soon. If we do not thoroughly understand what Paul is saying here about ourselves, then we may miss the point. It's easy to turn to chapter 3, verses 21 and following, but if we skim over or skip over these things, we may actually still be relying upon ourselves. And so Paul has been persistent and uh, maybe a bit over the top, we might think, but nevertheless necessary. But Paul comes now here at the end of the chapter and he gives us a glimpse of the good news, especially in verse 29. Now, I have given us glimpses because we could read through these 64 verses in, you know, 20 minutes or something like that. Um, And we, of course, have spent now roughly 20 sermons on these topics. So I have given glimpses at times in my sermons. I've especially done so with the hymns that we have sung and so on. In anticipation of this, last time we looked at Psalm 51 and we saw some of those glimpses of the good news. But if we're going to be faithful to the text, we must let the text speak for itself and not add to it or take away from it. And so now as we come to these words, let's expand more specifically on Paul's glimmer of light, his glimmer of hope. So let's look then at verse 28. And it says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. All right, now notice the first word in the sentence is for. This is a logical conjunction, and Paul is bringing to a conclusion what he's been saying here in chapter 2 especially, and even more specifically, verses 17 and following. And his point here is pretty straightforward. External religion is not the defining factor. Whether we're talking about moralism in the early verses of the chapter, whether we're talking about Judaism, or... Christianity, external religion, is not the defining factor. Descent from Abraham is not the most important thing. The covenant sign is not the most important thing either. What makes a moral person moral is not outward acts of morality. What makes a Jewish person Jewish is not a bloodline, nor a sign in blood. Or add other things, not having the scriptures, keeping the sacrifices or the food laws where you live, attending Sabbath worship or any other outward behavior. This did not make a Jew a Jew. Furthermore, what makes a Christian a Christian is not baptism, church membership, attendance, church activities, private devotions, family worship, Christian education, etc., etc., True Jews, true Christians, are not such because of what they do, but rather who they are in the depths of their being. And so I've said at different times over the years a statement like this. What is important for us is not doing Christianity, but being a Christian. Those who are Christians will do Christian things, but those Christian things are not the essence of being a Christian. And so this is what Paul is teaching us here. It's not the outward things that are important. 
That's what's going on within. So verse 29, he says, <clears throat> but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now let's also take note of the first word in this verse. Uh, but is an understatement. The, the Greek word here is to highlight a strong contrast. And so maybe something like rather or to the contrary or the opposite idea of verse 28 is this. So it's a very strong contrast in Paul's mind. A true Jew is not found on the outside. Rather, a true Jew is found on the inside. True child of Abraham is one inwardly. Physical descent is unimportant. That's why he could say in verses 26 and 27 that an uncircumcised Gentile can actually be a true believer if he keeps the law. Now you notice what Paul has done here. In many ways, he has redefined what a Jew is. Certainly in his culture, this was rather revolutionary. But on the other hand, Paul is not saying much that is different from what we see in other parts of the scriptures. God's people have always been inwardly so, not outwardly. In chapter 9 and verse 6, he's going to tell us that not all Israel is Israel. This idea of the remnant is something we see in the Old Testament. Uh, especially in the prophets, but even in other places. And in fact, okay, the essence of the law <clears throat> points to the heart, doesn't it? Okay. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Commands 1 to 4 especially emphasize loving God inwardly, not external religion. And then you add the 10th commandment, and that's what Paul's going to elaborate upon in chapter uh, 7, that that insists on obedience from the heart. So on the one hand, Paul is saying something quite striking. On the other hand, it's more of a reminder of something they should have known anyway. So therefore, Gentiles can be true Jews. So Ruth and Rahab and Cornelius and others, they can be true Jews because, again, the focus is on the heart. Now, as for circumcision in particular, because circumcision in the flesh is not the key mark of a believer, it's the circumcision of the heart, Paul says, that is what makes the most difference. And remember in Acts chapter 15, this was the whole point. Hey, to the Jerusalem council, how should we treat the Gentiles who come to believe in Jesus? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to become Jews first? And the answer was no. And it's because of what Paul is saying right here. Because what makes us a true believer is something going on on the inside. And so whether you are male or female, whether you are a physical Jew or a Gentile, an adult or a child, any ethnicity, any walk of life, any status in society, even if you are a notorious sinner or a lifelong church member, what matters is the heart. If the heart is circumcised, then you are a true believer. 
right now. <clears throat> In some ways, maybe this is like, well, yeah, of course. But, boy, there are a lot of churches that do not emphasize this. There are a lot of Christians that focus on the things that we do, and if we're honest with ourselves, so do we. What matters is the inside. So then, how can this inward circumcision take place? Obviously, you're not going to open up the heart and take out a scalpel and start cutting off the foreskin. I mean, it's obviously not what Paul is talking about. And so he answers the question by saying, in the spirit, not in the letter. Now, your translation may translate that preposition as by the spirit or by the letter, and both are appropriate. I think by would communicate the idea a little better here. It's by means of the spirit that we are circumcised within. It's not by means of anything that we do, which is what the letter is emphasizing here. There's not anything that we can do to affect this inside work. And that's because of many things. One, the law has no power to do this. Never has. The law has never had the ability to change a sinful heart. Furthermore, our outward behaviors, of course, as we've been talking about, they cannot change the heart. Right beliefs do not change the heart and the mind. Sincere faith doesn't even change our heart. Because our sincere faith is imperfect. No surgery, no psychological analysis or whatever, not obeying the letter of the law, none of these things can change the heart because it's impossible. We're dead in our sins. No one seeks God. No one is righteous. We are slaves to the power of sin. And as we saw in Psalm 51 last time, <clears throat> we're conceived in sin. Okay. So as little Abby joins us here, right? She's already been conceived in sin, even though she's just a couple months old. Okay. Our whole existence has been as a sinner. And so we have no hope in and of ourselves. Let's turn forward here a moment to chapter 7. <clears throat> As I've been saying that uh, Paul's just pulling the curtain back just a little bit here. And he's going to shut it again at the end of this verse. But uh, in chapter 7, he says a bit more. And if you look at verse 6 here especially... It says, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, right? We were slaves, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, Paul goes on to say the law is not the problem. We're the problem. And so we are slaves and the law can only condemn us, can only kill us. Because our heart is a mess. It's hard. Okay? But the spirit note makes a difference. Now let's turn to chapter 8. And uh, let me read this section. And here's where Paul greatly elaborates on the point. So beginning in verse 1 here in Romans 8, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, 
God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Did you catch that? It can't be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now he continues, but point is pretty straightforward, right? For all that Paul says in these verses, his basic point is without the Spirit, we'd still be slaves of sin. We'd still be dead in our sins. Uh, Let me read just one more. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and in verse 6. He says, God also made us sufficient as ministers in the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Again, he's not saying that the law is bad. He's just saying the law can't save us, can't change us. But God does through the work of Christ and his point here through the work of the Spirit, regenerating us, giving us a new heart. And so in and of ourselves, there is no hope, not even a minuscule amount. And we can do nothing to change it. But... There is hope because of what God does through the Son and here again especially through the Spirit. And so even if we do everything possible outwardly, it does not change us inwardly. And so here is Paul's emphasis. This is what Paul is saying. Our only hope is the work of the Spirit inside. And so then... This is the only way we can receive praise from God. Outward religion, physical descent, your name on a list, passing doctrinal exams, attending church. None of these things elicit God's praise. They elicit man's praise, but not God's, unless we do them perfectly. And of course we don't, and we can't. Now, this word for praise is very deliberately chosen on Paul's part because the word for praise comes from the Hebrew word that gives us the name Judah. Judah means praise. Remember when uh, Jacob had his fourth son with Leah? She names him Judah because she was praising God. And remember then that Jew is a nickname, a shortened form of Judah or Judean. And so he says you're not a Jew outwardly, but you are a Jew, a praised one, when the Spirit works in your heart. He's very deliberate in how he words this here. And so the hope of eternal life, the hope of escaping God's wrath, the hope to avoid 
all these evil and awful things is not found in us. We're dead. We're slaves. God has to initiate. We don't seek God. We don't choose God. In fact, he's going to say in chapter 3 that our words, our, our tongues, they're just filled with death and poison and cursing. And so no matter how sincere our profession of faith may be, that's not what saves us. It is through Christ and through the power of the Spirit. And we're never going to have a profession of faith anyway, no matter how weak it is, until the Spirit works in our hearts and changes us and gives us a heart that can respond. Because they're just stony otherwise. Now, these ideas then have such far-ranging implications. Um, The implications that uh, Paul is giving to us here at the end of chapter 2 are in many ways spelled out in the rest of the book. In chapter 9, he uh, assumes his point here. You can't understand the doctrine of election unless you understand that we can't do a thing to make any changes. In chapter 7, when he talks about delighting in the law, we can't do that unless our heart is changed by the Spirit. In chapter 5, he talks about union with Christ. We can't be united to Christ unless we're first united to Adam. And we can't make that change. Only the Spirit can take us out of our union to Adam and unite us to Christ. In chapter 4, he's going to elaborate on this point saying that All true believers are descendants of Abraham, either physically or spiritually. In chapter 6, he's going to talk about being slaves of righteousness, and we were slaves of sin. And that change is because the Spirit has set us free. The implications are endless. I could keep going here, but those are some of the main ones. Let's turn uh, back here a moment to Ezekiel. In chapter 36, <clears throat> you recall uh, a few weeks ago that uh, when we were talking about our uh, hypocrisy and how this blasphemes God's name, <clears throat> we looked at this passage and I read the whole thing just because of those glimmers of hope. Well, now let's focus on that glimmer and uh, look at verse 26. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. We call this total inability. Right? There's nothing that we can do to respond to God. Nothing. Until the Spirit works in us and gives us a new heart. And gives us a heart that is not stony and hard and dead, but a heart that is alive and fleshy, as he says. Let's turn also then to Psalm 51. <clears throat> Excuse me, and I read this one uh, for us, of course, last week. And made mention of this. Now let me call your attention to it again. In Psalm 51, verse 10, especially verses 10 and 11. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. All right, now in Ezekiel 36, the focus is on being an unbeliever, a hard heart. Psalm 51, David is already a believer, but he has stumbled terribly. And so his focus is on restoration. But even in that, even as a true Jew, when we sin, when we fall, we need the Spirit to work in us, to cleanse us from our sin, the specific sins that we've committed. And so again, note the emphasis on the heart and the Spirit. Okay. And so uh, here is Paul's glimmer of hope in the midst of it all. Paul is not stomping on us to crush us but so that we will cast ourselves on God and not look to ourselves at all so like David here in Psalm 51 we will cry out for mercy for God is our only hope and so the true Jew is one that God has made not anything we have done now, let me spend the rest of our time here this morning talking about a few more implications of this teaching. The implications really are quite endless, um, and I've already talked a little bit about that here in what Paul says in Romans. But um, without getting off on any one of them for any length of time, except for one I'll spend a little more time on, uh, but do you see the implications of what this means in our current political situation in the Middle East? If a true Jew is one who has the spirit and trusts in Jesus, what does that do for our political decisions over in the Middle East? Okay. I, I think it does quite a bit. We are not Zionists. Okay. We are Pauline here in this way. All right, so that's one way we can go. Another way we can go is this. You might remember last week uh, I talked about God's standard and how uh, we like to think that we're, you know, somewhere on this standard. You know, we, we do something good and we're not 100%. We recognize that, but we think we're somewhere along the way. And in and of ourselves, we're not even above zero. But once our hearts are changed and the Spirit has given us a heart of flesh, we can rate somewhere on this scale. Now, it might be still in the 10s or the 20s, okay? but we can rate on it because we do some things that are good because now the Spirit is working in us. God is making us righteous. We have a heart that responds to God. We delight in God's law. So we can rate on the scale to some degree. But, of course, God still has to look at us and see Christ, who is kept at 100%, and he can look at us and he can kind of chuckle a little bit and say, yeah, well, you know, I, I know they're trying, but I'm looking to Jesus because the only way they're going to get any blessings from me is if they do it 100%, and Jesus has. So here's another implication that Paul will develop, especially in chapter 12. Um, there is another implication here, one that I've talked about at different times here in chapters 1 and 2, and that, of course, is the issue of apologetics and evangelism. Okay. We can't reason anyone into the heavens. We cannot prove it by evidence. The heart must be changed. 
and our apologetics and evangelism must do that. Now, this is, I'm not speaking of hyper-Calvinism. I'm not denying the free offer of the gospel. But even in our free offer, we must tell them how uh, wretched they are in their terrible place, where their condition and so forth. So those are some other implications. But the implication I want to develop here a little bit is this. Paul, of course, has been speaking about being a descendant of Abraham and especially the sign of the covenant, circumcision. And so let me expand on the implication here of what Paul says in these verses in regard to the sign of the covenant. His point is straightforward, right? The sign of the covenant is something that happens on the inside, and it always has. Now, it is often the case that we hear people say that the Old Testament is outward and uh, physical, and the New Testament is inward and spiritual. But that's obviously not the case, because both the Old and the New Testament have outward and inward things. And so circumcision shed blood, but baptism uses water. Okay? We might talk about the focus on the heart of the New Testament, but that was the focus in the Old Testament too. Since Genesis 17, when God commanded the sign of circumcision, um, he meant more than an outward sign from the beginning. And we see that because Ishmael received the sign of the covenant and Isaac received the sign of the covenant, but only Isaac's heart was circumcised. We see that also with Jacob and Esau. Only Jacob's heart was circumcised. I made reference to Simon the sorcerer last week in Acts chapter 8. He received the sign of the covenant in baptism. But Peter came and said, but you're not baptized in the heart, basically. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 20, Paul uh, rebukes Hymenaeus and Alexander and basically says, well, yeah, they've been baptized, but they're not baptized in the heart. Now, he doesn't word it that way, but that's essentially what he is saying. And so the outward act of circumcision, the outward act of baptism is important. God commanded them. But that's not what is most important. Because these signs show membership in God's church. And if you're truly part of God's church, it has to be a work that's going on within these signs show that our sins are forgiven through the washing of water and the shedding of blood. But they're not truly washed unless it happens on the inside. We read from Titus 3 here a little bit ago. That's Paul's point there. It is the washing of regeneration. That's how our sins are washed clean. And, as Paul says here, the sign of the covenant has always pointed to the work of the Spirit within the heart. Okay. How can he say these words if that's not the case? Paul's not doing anything new here. He's just reminding them that it's always been that way. Let me read a few passages. You feel free to follow along, but let me show you that Paul's not alone. This is Deuteronomy chapter 10 here, first of all. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16 says... Um, therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. So notice, disobedience means you're not circumcised. Okay? But circumcise your heart and you can be obedient. 
I see the connection. In chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, and in verse 6, it says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Note the connection of circumcision of the heart and loving God. Again, the summary of the law. Um, Back to Leviticus chapter 26. This is verse 41. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I'll remember my covenant. And so again, note their disobedience. They humble themselves and then God will restore. Uh, In Jeremiah, uh, there's a few here. In chapter 4, Uh, Verse 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of of your doings. So because of their evil deeds, they are uncircumcised, even though they were physically circumcised. Then in chapter 9, verse 25, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Of course, they were physically circumcised. So note this emphasis. And I could read a few more. Do you see the implication of what Paul is telling us? If circumcision was always pointing to the work of the Spirit in the heart, how then can we say the Spirit came for the first time at Pentecost? Or another one. If circumcision has always been pointing to the work of the Spirit in the heart, how can anyone say then that the sign of the covenant points to my faith? I have no faith until the Spirit works in me. Circumcision and baptism do not point to me, to us. They point to the work of God in us. We do not affect the forgiveness of sins. We do not make membership in God's church happen. It's the work of the Spirit in us. Circumcision and baptism do not point to us, to outward blessings, but to the inward work of the Spirit and eternal blessings ultimately. And so not an adult nor a child can cause these things to occur. So again, do you see now where this is headed? No one can say that infant baptism is wrong. If you grant Paul's point here in verse 29, you cannot be against infant baptism. Because God commanded it in Genesis chapter 17 to eight-day-old boys. Now, in my personal journey of trying to come to an understanding of baptism and infant baptism, it was this right here in Romans 2. It finally put me over the edge, as it were. Finally convinced me that we have to go in the direction of infant baptism. Now, of course, we do baptize adults, but the focus here is on the continuing blessings to the next generation. The Spirit is working in us. This is the message of circumcision. This is the message of baptism. 
God commanded it to be done to an eight-day-old boy, and nowhere in the New Testament are we told to change this, especially after it was done for 2,000 years. And so those who insist on believers' baptism only, I think we have to conclude they have not actually wrestled carefully with these words. As I have never heard a convincing argument against infant baptism once people actually understand these ideas of Paul. And so the only way I would say to oppose infant baptism is to minimize the work of the Spirit in circumcision. And Paul won't allow us to do that because that's what a true Jew is, someone who has the Spirit working in them. All right, now, as I've said a few times, look, the implications are quite endless. Here's just one of them. I developed this one, of course, because of the connection with circumcision. But our, uh, our glimmer of hope here is uh, going to fade again. <laughs> and uh, next time, we will start verses 1 to 8. And Paul's tangent, you might say. And so let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving this for us, giving it initially by your spirit and preserving it over these many, many centuries. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for um, the ability to, to read your word and know that it's what you told Paul to, to write and what he wrote initially. Uh, we are thankful, Lord, that this... Um, work of the Spirit is just as significant as changing our hearts. And we do thank you, especially, Lord, that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you have given us your Spirit to give us these hearts of flesh, to regenerate us, to cause us to be born again, to give us this new life so that we can respond in repentance and faith. Lord, we thank you for these things. We thank you that you have pictured these things in the sign of the covenant, and uh, Lord, we pray that this then would be our focus, the focus on the inside, the focus on the heart, seeking to be Christians rather than just doing Christian things. Lord, we um, are just truly amazed that you would even do any of this, that you would come to us and give us hearts that can respond. Uh, Lord, it, it's just, it's really mind-boggling that you would stoop to us and do this. But we thank you. We thank you so much that through Christ, through your spirit, through your electing grace, through the covenant, through all these blessings, you have made this happen for us, your people. May this then spur us on to delight in your law and to live lives that are honoring and pleasing to you. And... Um, so, again, we are thankful, Lord, and we pray all of these things then in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.